This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We're going to be starting in Daniel chapter 4 tonight. Uh, Please somebody remind me, I enjoyed the fellowship so much last week. Dr. Coles came in and I think Cassandra and others, Sandy and Jen and others, Kim, and we got talking and uh, Brother Schofield and others and and I enjoyed it and I uh, was almost the last person to leave. And I got home and uh, I still had the microphone. (laughs) And fortunately I saw Pastor Callahan at the Pastors Fellowship on Friday morning, and he graciously brought it back. Uh, But please remind me, take off the microphone, (laughs) or I'll forget. Um, It's the second time I've done that, I think, in the last month. Uh, But uh, I did take it home from our church in Berean, where I'm serving as interim pastor, but fortunately I was able to get it back before, anyway, uh, the following week. But... uh, Somebody remind me, did you remember to give back the the mic? I appreciate that. Um, I'm very grateful um, for the good response to uh, the books, uh, and thank you for your gracious giving. Um, I brought three other books tonight I'd love to just share with you briefly. Uh, This is called The Lake of Fire. It's a hard-hitting evangelistic study on the doctrine of hell. The book has three main sections. One is the apology, and that talks about the 15 reasons why a God of love and justice must send people to hell who reject Christ, though it's a devastating doctrine. And then the second section is the agony that talks about what it's like for people who are living in hell right now, uh, strong motivation for why no one should want to go there. Then the third section is the appeal, and it talks about what are the implications of the doctrine of hell for lost people, and what are the implications for saved people. So uh, we have some copies of that back there. Uh, as we come into the uh, season of Easter, Good Friday and uh, uh, Easter Sunday and all, this book uh, will tie in. It's a, called It Is Finished. And it's a devotional study, a uh, monthly devotional, but every devotional deals with the crucifixion or the resurrection. So it's a study that can be used any time of the year, but it's especially uh, appropriate for uh, the week between Palm Sunday and uh, Resurrection Day. Uh, This book is called On Eagle's Wings, and it has a scripture and a relatively original devotional saying for each day of the year with special focus on holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Fourth of July and Columbus Day and all. Uh, But um, I say relatively original because in a lot of my works I quote a lot and uh, I try to bring resources from years of study to share it with readers as I'm able. But in this book I tried to be relatively original so uh, every one of the devotional sayings was was original and it went with a scripture. I say relatively original because uh, it's hard to be original when you draw on so many people. Uh, It has been said in so many words, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, of course, but it has been said in so many words, if you borrow from one person, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from a lot of people, it's research. 
And if you borrow from everybody all over the place and can't remember where you got a thing, it's creativity. <laughs> but uh, this is an attempt to be relatively original. But uh, these books are back there, and uh, love to have you look them over. Oh, that's a nice way to put it, Sandy. Uh, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> In Daniel 4, we have the cutting down of the towering tree. And in verses 1 through 17 that we looked at last week, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, is giving his testimony of how God saved them. And he talks about, these are the great signs and wonders which God did toward me. I was in my palace, flourishing, at rest on my bed, things were going great. And I had this very unusual dream. My dear daughter called me up this morning and uh, when she was, had left the house and she said, Dad, I had this disturbing dream last night and uh, what do you think it means? Um, uh, but you know, this was a really challenging dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and um, he uh, gathered all his wise men together and uh, said, tell me what it is and they couldn't. And uh, he calls Daniel in and says, I need your help. And uh, he tells the dream to Daniel about there being this towering tree that reaches up to heaven and uh, all the earth sees it. And uh, in its branches are meat for all nations and shade. And uh, it's got, under it the fowls, uh, the, the uh, beasts of the field uh, abide and uh, they eat and the birds of the air are in the branches. And uh, then there's this watcher uh, that says, cut the tree down and uh, uh, take away all the fruit and uh, pull off all the leaves, but leave the stump and put uh, an iron and brass um, encasement around it to guard the root. Uh, and, uh, it, and it said that uh, uh, this will take place Seven times will pass over the root after the tree is cut down until thou dost know that the heavens do rule and that God gives it to whomsoever he will, sets it over the basest of men. So we talked about that dream last week and now we pick up with verse 18 of chapter four. Thanks for your help, Brother Kevin. Great, thank you, sir. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, now thou, O Belteshazzar, that's the uh, Babylonian name for Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. Not because he couldn't figure out the dream, but because he could, and it was bad news for the king he loved. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. He used good tact. He said, I could wish this on your enemies rather than it happen to you. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much. 
and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown, and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven, and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. All this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, repent. God can extend the time of grace and maybe uh, extend it indefinitely. Repentance, I think, was best defined by a little girl who said, repentance is to be sorry enough to quit. And Daniel says, break off your sins and show mercy to the poor and practice righteousness. But I thought that was pretty good. Repentance means you're sorry enough to quit. <laughs> and then we read in verses 29 and 30, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar was probably the greatest builder of ancient times. 49 building inscriptions of this king have been uncovered thus far at the time of this quote. Most of the bricks uncovered from ancient Babylon bear this inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He himself declared that his heart impelled him to build. In an inscription preserved in the British Museum, the words, I have built, occur over and over again. Several inscriptions have been found which in their boastfulness tally exactly with verse 33. Babylon was, humanly speaking, a great city. In fact, Isaiah 13 calls it the city of gold. Of all the cities mentioned in the Bible, Babylon's the one that's mentioned the second most times. Isn't that interesting? Can you guess which one's mentioned the most? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. very good. The city was divided into two equal parts by the Euphrates River. It had 25 avenues, 150 feet wide, which ran across the city from north to south. 
The same number crossed them at right angles from east to west, making a total of 676 great squares, each nearly three quarters of a mile on each side. The entire city of Babylon was an immense square totaling 15 miles in each direction. The uh, famous Greek historian Herodotus said the city was surrounded by a wall 350 feet high and 87 feet thick, extending 35 feet below the ground to prevent tunneling and wide enough for six chariots to ride abreast. J. Vernon McGee comments and says, they could put a freeway around the top of the city. <laughs> Very appropriately, Jeremiah 51:58 refers to, quote unquote, the broad wall of Babylon. And indeed it was. Eight major gates led into the city whose double walls span both sides of the Euphrates River. The city boasted 53 temples. Oh, thank you, dear brother. Does anybody need a syllabus? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're on page 14. Thank you so much. The city boasted 53 temples. And uh, of all the uh, gates, uh, the most famous was the Ishtar Gate. Uh, you often read about that when you read about inscriptions to Babylon. Also, the famous hanging gardens were there that Nebuchadnezzar built for his median wife, Queen Amitus, because she missed the green hills and valleys of her homeland. And so he built her the hanging gardens of Babylon. And uh, they were considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The gate and the city walls were decorated with colored bricks, which featured drawings of lions and dragons and bulls. It was a magnificent city. It's so important if a person, with God's help, achieves a lot. It's so important not to get the big head. Warren Wearsby says that love builds up, but uh, mere knowledge blows up. And um, as God blesses you and me, we need to be quick to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 115.1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy true sake. Now, we all need encouragement. Mark Twain said I can go a whole two months on one good word. But whenever somebody encourages you, may your prayer be, Lord, may these kind encouraging words go only to my knees and nowhere else. Help me to gratefully and humbly receive them and be encouraged and just want to serve you more than ever because you're so good. And uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And in verse 30, Nehemiah, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar was inflamed with pride. And so we read in verses 31 through 33, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, he was stopped dead right in his tracks as he was bragging. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. We have another description of this in chapter 5, 20 and 21, as Daniel reminds King Belshazzar of his grandfather's experience and uh, how he didn't benefit from the lesson. Nebuchadnezzar is called his father there, but in the sense of ancestor, he was his grandfather. Just like, you know, in Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, David lived a thousand years before Jesus and Abraham 2,000, but there the word father is used in the sense of ancestor. But we read in verses 20 and 21, Belshazzar is being given a history lesson by Daniel. A wise man learns from other people's experiences. The average man learns from his own experiences. Fool learns from nobody's experiences. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God ruleth in the kingdom of men and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And then Daniel 7, 4 makes a reference to this too. The first, Babylon, the first beast out of the sea, Babylon, it was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. In the mental illness known as zoanthropy, from the Greek word uh, zoan, from which we get the word zoo, it means uh, living creatures, and anthropos, man, a man who acts like an animal. In the mental illness known as zoanthropy, an illness observed in modern times, a person thinks of himself as an animal and acts like one. Oh. I just got to thinking, there are a whole lot of people in this wicked and adulterous generation who don't have a mental illness and they still act like animals. <laughs> he that uh, is an honor and understandeth not, said the psalmist, is like the beast that perish. But I guess that's another message. <laughs> 
Dr. R.K. Harrison narrates in some detail his meeting a man in a London mental institution with this disease. And in this book, Introduction to the Old Testament, pages 114 to 17, he tells about this encounter. The typical onset for this kind of malady occurs in later life. It frequently lasts from months to years, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, seven years, and remits spontaneously, often without subsequent relapse. To date, there is no attested activity by Nebuchadnezzar between the years 581 and 573 BC. He had a long reign from around 606 to 562 BC. But toward the end of his reign, in the years 581 through 573, there's no attested activity. The record is largely silent, except the ongoing drawn-out siege of Tyre, which lasted for 13 years. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to be on scene for that. His generals handled that. And he was pretty much out of the picture. Uh, and so this could very well tie in in the secular history records with this experience that the Bible relates. Extra biblical, and that word means information outside the pages of the Bible. And so often extra biblical evidence is very supportive of what's in the Bible. And I think when truly read always is. Extra biblical records deal with his infirmity only obliquely. It seems like they make reference to it, uh, but you gotta read between the lines a little bit. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus cited a report by the Babylonian priest Barosus that Nebuchadnezzar died following a period of weakness. The Christian writer Eusebius preserved the tradition from the Greek historian Megosthenes, who wrote around 300 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar, having ascended to the roof of his palace, became inspired by some god. In antiquity, insanity was looked upon as possession by a deity. Seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lived as a beast without heart or conscience to God. Just what his succeeding empires became, beastly in character and in action. In Daniel 7, out of the stormy Mediterranean Sea, four great world empires will arise, beginning with Babylon. And they're all characterized as wild, rapacious, ravenous beasts. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the nondescript metallic monster with the iron teeth and brass claws, representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And some they all headed up by one that the book of Revelation appropriately calls the beast. Therion in the Greek, wild beast. The degradation of Nebuchadnezzar finds its spiritual counterpart in the voluntary behavior of multitudes all around us. They have human souls, 
yet they live as though they should perish like mere beasts. Psalm 49 says that if you do really well for yourself in this world and name your lands and houses after you, men will compliment you if you do well. Say, great job. But when you die, you leave it all behind. And it says, man that is an honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. A man may be wise in this life and the fool forever. As Jesus said of the rich man, after he said, soul, take thy ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for you have good stored up for many years. But God said unto him that night, thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee, and then who shall these things be? So is every one that uh, gathers riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then in verses 34 through 37, we see that Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses when he comes to his God. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And here we see he learned a great lesson. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Amen. Your highest ambition and mine, in the words of Micah 6.8, should be to walk humbly with thy God. When he came to himself, we read in Luke 15, 17, the prodigal son returned to the father. When he came to himself, he returned to the father. There's a sense in which before he came to himself, he was beside himself. Dr. James Earls always used to say something, and I was trying to think of today exactly how he said it, because he said it so well, and I'm not sure I got it exactly right. You may remember him saying it, but he said that a proud man is inside himself and a mad man is beside himself. And uh, we are all spiritually crazy if we set up ourselves against our maker. But when he came to himself, we read in Luke 15, 17, then he returned to his father. And when Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned, he praised God. There is a correlation between lifting up one's eyes to heaven 
and having one's understanding restored. As was the case also with the prodigal son who kneels here beside the proud monarch. Well, we now come into chapter 5. And chapter 5 is all about Daniel's ability to read and interpret the handwriting on the wall. Daniel's ability to read and interpret the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar is king. The year is 539 BC. The powerful forces of the Medo-Persian army are outside the walls of Babylon. And Belshazzar throws a big party. He invites all of his queens and concubines and court and officials to it. And uh, as they start drinking and start getting drunk, he calls for the vessels from the holy temple of God that had been carried by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon years ago from Jerusalem to be brought out. And they drink wine out of them. And uh, they're getting, as J. Vernon McGee puts it, beastly drunk. <laughs> And then they praise the gods of gold and silver and brass and stone and iron and wood um, as they drink out of these vessels and praise their God and uh, show contempt for Jehovah. And then Belshazzar sees the fingers of a hand, no hand, but just fingers, writing on the plaster of the wall. And he is frightened terribly. And uh, he calls for all the counselors and wise men, and they can't interpret it or even read what it says. And then he's even more concerned. And while everybody's in a panic, the queen mother comes in, and uh, she says, there's a man in your kingdom. whom your father, Nebuchadnezzar, greatly respected and honored, but uh, has largely fallen out of favor because of the evil times and not being able to recognize true greatness. And, uh, but if you call this man in, Daniel, he has a wonderful ability to decipher uh, riddles and dissolve doubts and uh, interpret dreams, and he'll be able to help you. So Belshazzar quickly calls for Daniel, and he says, if you can read the handwriting on the wall and interpret it for me, he said, I'll give you these wonderful honors and make you uh, third ruler in the kingdom. And uh, Daniel says, you may keep your gifts, king. Nevertheless, I will do my duty and read the handwriting on the wall and interpret it. And then before he does it, he preaches hard at him. And he said, you have lifted up yourself against the God of heaven. When Nebuchadnezzar lifted up himself, he really went through the ringer and took humility 101 until he finally learned that the heavens do rule and uh, set up over kingdoms the basest of men. You knew all this and you didn't repent. 
and you have taken the vessels of God's temple and you've drunken out of them and your wives and your concubines and your officials and you praise the gods of gold and silver uh, and bronze and iron uh, that can't see or hear and uh, have no breath. And the God in whose hand your breath is, the one who completely controls all things and that you're deeply dependent upon, him you have defied. And therefore the handwriting was sent. And this is the interpretation of it. Your days are numbered. You're weighed in the balance and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Belshazzar was true to his word, and he honored Daniel and made him third ruler of the kingdom. But that very night, the Medes and the Persians took the city. Belshazzar was killed, and at the age of 62, Darius the Median becomes the new king. And a new era in history begins as we go from the head of gold to the breast and arms of silver and from Babylon to Persia. That's a quick summary of what's in the chapter. One gifted Bible teacher has this outline for the chapter. There's the ball, verse one, like a ball or a party. There's the gall, verses two and four. He had the gall to do what he did in bringing in those vessels and drinking out of them and praising the gods of the pagans. There's the wall, verses five and six. It's written on by the fingers. There's the call, call for Daniel. <laughs> There's the, in verses 14 through 29, and then there's the fall in verses 30 and 31 where the king dies and is slain. I love that outline, but I can't think of a word in verses 14 to 29 that matches call or fall or wall that describes what happens when the uh, writing is read and interpreted. And if anybody can help me come up with a good word, uh, I would be grateful. Now the teacher who gave this outline uh, he put the word scroll. But as I looked up scroll, that is writing, but it's usually writing that's kind of uh, uh, not real formal like you would see on a subway or a bathroom wall or something like that. So I think we can come up with a better word. I just don't know what it is. Uh, so if you can help me with that, that'll help my outline uh, that I got from this scholar. Anyway, um, question. Why did Belshazzar seem so oblivious to the danger with the powerful Medo-Persian army of Cyrus the Great just outside the walls of Babylon? He throws a party. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. He, he, thought, he thought that uh, Babylon couldn't be breached. Thank you. Belshazzar considered the city secure from assault because of its massive walls. Within the city were supplies that would sustain it for 20 years. The Euphrates River ran through the city from north to south so the residents had an ample water supply. And so uh, he probably felt pretty secure. Maybe also he wanted to encourage his nobles and the people to say, I'm not worried, we can throw a party, we're fine, if they were 
having their morale breakdown and all of that. It's, not, it's hard to say all that was going through his head, but um, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Wherefore, let him that think if he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And I thought Dr. Coles in his prophetic outline said it so well. There is no safety except within the bounds of God's mercy. There is no safety except within the bounds of God's mercy. If your number is up, weight in the balances and found wanting, your day's numbered. Even walls 87 and a half feet thick can't protect you. Another question. Why couldn't any of Belshazzar's wise men even read the words written on the wall? We can understand why they might not be able to interpret their meaning, but why couldn't they even read the words? Wasn't it in their own Aramaic language, which was the international language of that day? Since they couldn't even read the words, let alone interpret them. Yes, ma'am. But, but did they even see the Yes, apparently they did. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was pretty public when it was written on that white plaster, yeah. I think they all saw it pretty much, yeah. I think. Could double check that, but I think so. Yes, ma'am. So, yes, sir. There's a verse that says, The God of this world has blinded the minds, believe. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, uh, uh, for they are foolishness unto him, uh, uh, neither can he know them, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The, the natural man can't understand the meaning of Scripture. And uh, this handwriting on the wall has become part of Scripture. Amen. So uh, that, that would, I think, explain certainly how they would have trouble interpreting it. Uh, by the way, the natural man can't appreciate certain things in the Bible, what we call general revelation. You can have... Um, you can have great truths that are expressed in the Bible, like thou shalt not kill, and uh, uh, you know things like uh, people don't like to see you bragging so much that uh, you become obnoxious. Uh, Proverbs has a lot of principles that even lost people can appreciate and say that's well said. They can appreciate the general revelation in the Bible that's given in perfect Bible form. Um, a lost man, not all lost men, but a lost man can understand that the wages of sin is death. Not all lost men can, but some do. But only special revelation can tell a man the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think what 1 Corinthians is saying is the natural man can't understand the special revelation in the Bible concerning the gospel and the trinity and the incarnation and the fact that man's a sinner who deserves hell and he can't be saved by his own good works and he needs the mercy of God at Calvary and the resurrection and uh, he receives as a gift and, uh, and he needs to live a holy life and uh, see the world system as, the, as an enemy. Uh, that the natural man can't get. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 is focusing on. But yes, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not lest the natural result would be if they were open to the truth, lest uh, the, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ would shine into them. So yes, there certainly can be a, a satanic blinding. But why couldn't they even read the writing? We understand why they couldn't know the interpretation. 
See, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. One scholar suggests the words, though Chaldee or Aramaic, may have been written in Hebrew characters. So even though it was the Aramaic language, they used Hebrew letters and they couldn't read what the Hebrew letters meant because they didn't know Hebrew. That could be one possibility. Another person says, though written in Aramaic, it was difficult to read perhaps because it was an unusual script. Uh, of course, there could be another reason too, but uh, they couldn't even read what it said, let alone interpret what it meant. And Daniel did both. Here's another question. Did the last king of Babylon survive the capture of Babylon by the Medo-Persian army? Did the last king of Babylon survive the capture of Babylon by the Medo-Persian army in October of 539? You say, well, that's a dumb question, Brother Walter. It says he, at the end of the chapter, he died. <laughs> no, where's the, where's the ruler of Ravenna? What's that? Where's the ruler of Ravenna? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't quite hear that. The third ruler of Ravenna. Yes, good point. You're, you're, you're going right along the lines that I'm thinking. When I asked the question, did the king of Babylon die the night the city was taken? Um, and I don't mean it to be a trick question. It's just that it's a question that's more involved. And... Um, Many years ago, the liberals used to say, when they attacked the book of Daniel, every schoolboy knows, that is, those who studied ancient history, every schoolboy knows, or anybody who was familiar with Babylonian history, knew that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. And when the city was taken, he was away from the city. He didn't die. And Cyrus treated him graciously. He didn't allow him to rule or have any authority, but he put him off uh, somewhere where he could just live out the rest of his life in peace and, uh, but not have any influence. So it's well known in history for hundreds of years that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus and that he didn't die when the uh, city was taken. He lived for some time afterward through the clemency of Cyrus. So they say, here's an obvious blunder. Uh, we have no record of any person even named Belshazzar. Yet Daniel says he was the last king of Babylon and he died the night the city was taken. Now, beginning around 1850, archeology span began doing a lot of digging around there and while Belshazzar had been mentioned nowhere before that, but in the Bible and in the book of Baruch, uh, which was uh, written in the intertestamental period and based on the book of Daniel, but basically apart from the Bible, history had no record of Belshazzar. So the liberals said, well, we're right in saying that an unknown man wrote it around 165 BC in Palestine and was totally out of touch about what happened in Babylon in the sixth century. And that supports our theory that the prophecies are prophecies after the event, and we can't take the book of Daniel too seriously except to have some nice religious views about it, which is the typical liberal position. And conservatives kept on saying, there's a lot of evidence to support the Bible, and uh, we believe it, and uh, a lot more light will surface. 
and eventually that faith was rewarded. Archaeology eventually uncovered the name Belshazzar, and uh, they found out things like he was co-regent with his father. In the year 553, I think it was, his father in the third year of his reign made his firstborn son co-regent. And uh, we also found out that Belshazzar wasn't that interested in the details of ruling. He was very interested in archaeology. He was an amateur archaeologist and one of the first archaeologists in history. He went to the oasis in Timon and Edom and uh, did archaeological digs. And, uh, uh, and he was away from the kingdom, I think, for one time, seven years. And he put Belshazzar in charge and put him in charge of the army and everything. And that explains why he could only offer Daniel third ruler in the kingdom, because that was the next highest opening. His father, Nabonidus, was the king. He was the co-regent and acted as king, was called king. And so the only next position open was third ruler of the kingdom. Something has uh, come to light called the Persian verse account of Nabonidus. And it reads, when the third year was about to begin, he entrusted the camp to his eldest son, the firstborn. The troops everywhere in the country he ordered under his command, he let everything go entrusted the kingship to him and himself. He started out for a long journey. So the liberals who used to say, if Daniel wrote it in the sixth century in Babylon, he wouldn't have made such a blunder. Now they're struggling with how could somebody who wrote from Palestine in 165 BC, when a lot of this material was lost to history and only uncovered in the last 150 years through archeology, span know these facts in such uh, precision. In fact, a Harvard scholar who's a famous liberal, his name is Robert H. Pfeiffer, he made this statement, we shall presumably never know how our author Learn Belshazzar, mentioned only in Babylonian records, in Daniel, and in Baruch 111, which is based on Daniel, was functioning as king when Cyrus took Babylon. So the Bible, again, is uh, wonderfully vindicated. Another question. How did the enemy army manage to capture the seemingly impregnable city of Babylon? Yes. Yes, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, um, Belshazzar's forces went out to meet the approaching uh, Persian army and meeting an army coming in from the north, and they were rebuffed and they retreated back uh, inside the walls of the city. And Cyrus was digging a reservoir, his men were digging a reservoir. For over a period of several months. And they were able to divert the Euphrates River that ran under the wall to that reservoir and then come in on the shallow uh, riverbed and take the city by almost surprise. Uh, they basically were taking over before people knew what was what. And according to another writer who wrote around 400 BC, Zonathan, he said that when the city was taken, it was in the midst of what he called a drunken orgy, which I think is a good description of Belshazzar's feast. Now, when the handwriting was written on the wall, 
there was no room for repentance as far as the punishment. It would be wonderful if Belshazzar listened to Daniel's preaching and got saved, uh, even if he died that night. But uh, the punishment was irrevocable. There wasn't, if you turn, then the city will be spared. He had gone beyond the point of no return. Your days are numbered. You're weighed in the balances and found wanting. The city is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, is what the handwriting on the wall said. Remember what it was like when mom had enough? Well, God had enough, said one youth teacher back in North Carolina. Some of you might know Pastor Chuck Pearson, the moderator of our Tidewater Baptist Fellowship, pastor of Tidewater Baptist Church, an outstanding pastor. Uh, Brother Chuck was uh, telling us, um, might have been at a pastor's fellowship, he said, uh, when we were um, growing up, up in Vermont, he said, when my father told us to mind, we better mind. He says, if he tells us to mind and we get right, we escape the punishment. He said, but when dad stood up, when dad stood up, there was no sitting him back down. You had it. You were going to get it. And uh, that's basically what happened here. Now, in this chapter, we have the calloused king, the confounded king, and the condemned king. The calloused king, he drank out of the vessels, disregarded Jehovah, Praise the gods of silver and gold. And then he was confounded by the handwriting on the wall and scared. And then he was condemned uh, to death that very night. Now, in Jeremiah 51, 57, we are told, and I will make her drunk, her princes, her wise men, her captains, and her rulers, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake except the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. Some people believe Jeremiah 51:57 is predicting the fact that they would be drunk when the city would be overthrown. 51:52 of Jeremiah. Wherefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will do judgment upon her graven images, and through all her land the wounded shall groan. Some people believe that this is a prediction of the fact that uh, idols would be honored like at the feast, drinking out of vessels, praising the gods of gold and silver and wood. And uh, it, it did happen that way. We read in 5, 1 through 4, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. J. Vernon McGee comments. I thought it rather ironical when a group of well-meaning citizens in Los Angeles, leaders from the schools, the churches, and politics, 
met together to discuss the drug problem among young people. You know how they opened their meeting? With a cocktail party. Drink can be very bad, as well as drugs, and ruining a society and ruining a family. <coughs> McGee refers to the people at this feast as beastly drunk. And he makes the observation that wine always brings the fool to the surface in the drunken person and refers us to Proverbs 23, 29 through 33. Then we read in verses 5 through 9 that the handwriting was on the wall and Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar trembled and the people were astonished. In the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, writes Joyce Baldwin, archaeologists have uncovered a large throne room, 56 feet wide and 173 feet long, which probably was the scene of this banquet. Midway in the long wall opposite the entrance, there was a niche in front of which the king may well have been seated. Interestingly, the wall behind the niche was covered with white plaster as described by Daniel, which would make an excellent background for such a writing. And boy, they were scared. Suddenly, the hilarity of the revelry gave way to hushed fear. Although, his, although he was suddenly sober, he still could not stand up. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote, but saw not the person whose hand it was, which made the thing more frightful. The inability to interpret the message made it even more ominous. His brightness changed. He immediately turned from a drunken pink to a frightened white. His color and the flush of wine left his cheek and a deadly paleness came over him. In a painting called Belshazzar's Feast by Washington Alston, the artist labored on the drawing for over 12 years and then gave up. One of the main reasons he gave up and didn't finish the painting is he said he was unable to capture the terror and the fear that he believed was on Belshazzar's face after the handwriting on the wall. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Matthew Henry says, God's written word is sufficient to put the proudest, boldest sinner into a fright. Remember what our Lord said in John 12.48, he that rejecteth you and receiveth not my words hath one to judge of him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day. By the way, if we may compare Daniel 8, excuse me, Daniel 5 with John 8, the same hand that wrote on the wall wrote on the ground. We'll talk more about that handwriting on the wall next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.